So if you could turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, chapter 3. Ruth is the book right after Judges and before Samuel. So it's towards the front of your Bible. Scripture reading is from Ruth, chapter 3. And we'll be reading the entire chapter, starting at verse 1. Ruth, chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking." But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet And lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. And that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you... Then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay down at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together before we start. Father in heaven... We thank you for this story from Ruth, and we look forward to anticipation um, to the unfolding of the word, your word. And Lord, as we go through this passage, um, we are um, seeking to be adjusted. We don't want to come to your word and then leave unchanged. We want to come to your word anticipating, being willing, having a humble heart before it, expecting to be changed. We want to leave this place changed today, Lord. Because of your word, because we trust in the power of your word. And um, today, um, as we look at 
the power of your redemption, what it means, what the implications are. Lord, I pray that that would truly sink into our hearts. Be with me as I preach. Help me. And open our hearts and our, the, uh, the ears of our heart, the eyes of our heart, so that we may see and hear your word clearly and truly today, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to start with a question. How do I become pleasing to God? That's a valid question, isn't it? And it's an important question. What makes me acceptable to God? Now, don't dismiss this question too quickly as, it's, as one that you've never really asked yourself before. Because this question takes many forms. You may not relate to that question directly, but how about some of these? Why do I have so many setbacks? I want to provide for my family. Why have I been laid off? Why doesn't God bless me with work? Or how can I be sure that God really loves me and always will? Does God love me when I'm struggling with certain temptations? What about after I have sinned and fallen into sin? Don't I go into the penalty box for a while? Can I have an unhappy marriage and be pleasing to God? Can I be divorced and be pleasing to God? I just lied to my parents. Does God love me? My parents are fighting so much. Why doesn't God make it stop? What have I done to deserve this? Well, each one of these questions really gets resolved if we answer the question, what makes me acceptable to God? At the very root of all of those questions, just really, no matter what, does God accept me? How do I get his favor? And that's a profound question. And I'm sure if I opened the floor up right now and said, let's try to answer this together, I think we've been churched. We would come to an agreement. Somebody pretty soon would say something like this. Well, it's Christ's work on the cross, right? And we'd all agree. But this is what I want us to think about this afternoon. If we know that that is true, then why do we struggle so much with these questions? Why is it so hard for us to believe that God is really pleased with us? Well, I think it would be simplistic just to say it's just one thing. When we struggle with unbelief in God's acceptance of us, many factors play a role. And again, if we were having a conversation, there would be many answers coming back. But isn't it true that at the core of these struggles, rest, that they rest in a misunderstanding or a misapplication of Christ's redemption. Has he really fully paid for my acceptance before him? Well, through the actions of Boaz at the threshing floor, we are going to have a chance to grasp or understand the nature of Christ's redemption, how it works, what it's like. What is Christ's redemption like? We're going to understand that a little better and armed with a more accurate understanding of Christ's redemption, I, can, I hope that we're poised just to swiftly punish those haunting questions that kind of swirl around our heads from time to time in your quiet moments. So, 
Today, we're going to just be working on applying Christ's redemption. That's what we're busy with. Now, if I could just anticipate a question that might be rising uh, amongst you. So well, why is Ron talking about Christ's redemption? We just read this passage about Boaz and Ruth and their love story, and Boaz is trying to get, uh, Ruth is trying to get together with Boaz. What does that have to do with uh, Christ's redemption? So let's just step away from the message for a minute and look at a method of preaching um, the Old Testament called historical redemptive preaching. Now, kids, I'm not in school, so that gives me the privilege to quote the Wikipedia page without censure from uh, authoritarian teachers who, for reason known only to the uh, teaching profession, have uh, censured that whole page, which is actually the answer to everything, right? You type it in, and it gives you the answer. Now, I'm being facetious, but I do think it gives a very good definition of uh, uh, historical redemptive preaching. So we're going to put that up on the PowerPoint, and I will read it to you verbatim from Wikipedia. Students, eat your hearts out. Can we get that up on the, the PowerPoint? Wonderful. Redemptive historical preaching is a method of preaching that was forged in the fires of debate in the Reformed churches of the Netherlands in the early 1940s. So right away, you know something good's coming, right? It came out of Holland. Um, now, the fact that... I grew up in Holland. My wife is 100% Dutch. Does not play into that bias at all. The debate debate concerned itself with this question. How are we to preach the historical narratives of the Bible? They argued that the Old Testament narratives are not primarily to be moral examples, but as revelations of the coming Messiah. Tim has often taught us about that, right? He said, you read the Old Testament scriptures, you look for the gospel, you look for Christ. That's really a way of explaining a historical redemptive approach to those narratives. In support of this view, the advocates of redemptive historical preaching drew heavily upon the text of Luke 24, verse 27, where Jesus is teaching the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and I quote, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what's that saying? Is that in the prophets, those things were foretelling things about Christ. And Christ verifies that in that conversation. Further support was taken from verse 44 of the chapter, where Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. So he's saying again, the Old Testament talks about me. This then is to be the way in which the narratives are to be preached with a view towards showing how the text points towards Christ. So, consistent with this method, we'll be looking at the te- what the text teaches about Christ by tracing the actions of the character of Boaz. So actually, you're going to be, we're going to be talking in this message a lot more about the, the redemptive aspects, about the shadow that uh, Boaz casts, um, pointing forward to Christ. Then we're going to be talking about the narrative. We will go to the text, but we're going to get a lot more about what it says about Christ today. So I just wanted to be clear on that and a little bit of, um, uh, a little bit of teaching on historical redemptive preaching. Back to the message, back to the text. Chapter 3 of the book of Ruth demonstrates how God redeems in the story of how Boaz redeems. And it wants to adjust the ways we seek to make ourselves redeemable as well. So those two things are going to be 
getting a better grasp on what it means to be redeemed. Let's get adjusted a little bit on how we present ourselves to be redeemed. Central to the passage is a redeemer, Boaz, and an alien woman, Ruth, in need of redemption. Now, does that sound familiar? That's like us, right? God, who is telling the story by inspiring the pen of the author of Ruth, is teaching about how he redeems us. And listen, when we understand how God redeems us, we understand God's pleasure in us. I'm going to say that one more time. When we understand how God redeems us, then we can really understand and be sure and have confidence that God has pleasure in us. Now, there are three ways in which Boaz's redemption of Ruth is like God's redemption of us and will help us to understand what that redemption is like. And they are as follows. Number one, Boaz reveals how God redeems in faithfulness to his promises and covenants. Number two, Boaz reveals how God redeems us by fully covering our offenses. And number three, Boaz reveals how God redeems fast. Point number one, Boaz reveals how God redeems us in faithfulness to his promises and covenant and covenants. And for that, we're going to look at the first section, starting at verse 1 and going through to verse 12. The section that really deals with her making preparations, going through the, the field, and then the conversation that Boaz had, mainly Boaz asking Ruth questions, that exchange. Now, we're going to skim over verses 1 through 7. Firstly, because Andrew subversively already stole them last month in my absence, I was not even here to defend my poor verses. That was cool, Andrew. I'm just kidding. And secondly, and now I'm being serious, because it's really somewhat unclear what Ruth and Naomi are really doing. And the scholarly explanations of, that, of those verses are somewhat, could we say, controversial, inconclusive, they're not in 100% agreement. There's a lot of cultural context that has to be brought in that we just aren't completely clear on anymore. Um, but what I will say, and what is clear about that, that those first seven verses, is that Naomi and Ruth are making preparations to present Ruth to Boaz in the hope that Boaz will redeem her. But certain factors are against Ruth in her quest, aren't they? Ruth is really starting in the place where each one of us starts when we, are accepting, when we are seeking acceptance in the kingdom of God. She is a Moabitess. She's a foreigner. She's a Gentile outside of the covenant community of Israel. She's not among God's chosen people and has no claim for herself in the promised land, in the inheritance of Israel. And that's how we start, as outsiders of God's kingdom, with no claim of our own to that kingdom, to a place in that kingdom. Listen how Paul describes our starting position in Ephesians 2. Can we get that up on the PowerPoint? This is Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, that's us, Called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That's the the people of Israel, the chosen people. 
which is made in the flesh by hands. The, the circumcision was a sign of the covenant that, that the Israelites had been chosen by God. The, the males were circumcised on the eighth day, and that signified, these are my chosen people. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Do you see the problem? That's how far away we started from belonging to God. Separated, aliens, strangers, having no hope. That's where Ruth starts. No claim in Israel of her own right. Poor and destitute. Scrounging for food. And hoping beyond hope for a way out. So she prepares herself according to Naomi's instructions. In the hope of attracting Boaz's favor. Don't know what it is. Preach this at home. No problem. You don't need any water. You get up here every two seconds. You want to have a drink of water. I don't know if this one's big enough. Does anybody have one of those super gulps? Interestingly, it seems like Boaz does not even notice all of Ruth's preparations. At least uh, in the passage, he makes no mention of it. We don't have proof that he noticed it. But her appeal to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant or your cloak. Wings or cloak can be translated both ways, the Hebrew word. For you are a redeemer. Those are essentially an appeal for Boaz to marry Ruth and assume the responsibilities of perpetuating the name and the land of Ruth's deceased husband. That does grip him. And that's what Boaz begins to respond to and interact with in the ensuing dialogue that happens. He addresses that. That's where he goes. He doesn't go to the preparations. He goes over here to that appeal. That grabs his imagination. He wakes up, startled perhaps by the cold, cold feet, and simply asks this question, which is a profound question. Who are you? Now, I say that's profound. And you might say, well, what's so profound about the question? Well, who are you? Well, see, Ruth has to then reveal her true identity. This is what she says. She says, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. See, in spite of all her dressing up and her preparations, what she has to answer is, I'm still Ruth the Moabitess, still subservient to you, Still an alien, still poor, still helpless, still a hopeless widow. Boaz's question really brings all the preparations to naught, doesn't it? Removes the makeup, wipes off the perfume. And that's what we must answer back to God when we first encounter him. He will ask you, who are you? What is the basis of your approach to my throne? And what we would have to answer, just like Ruth. I'll use myself as an example. I am Ron. Fill in your name. Still too impatient, too self-righteous, too full of cravings for approval from people. Easily discouraged. Still not holy, still sinful, still unworthy to be associated with you. And you can fill in your own weaknesses. I filled in some of mine. 
your sins, your shortcomings. Who am I when I meet God? A man unable to change himself into what I need to be, which is perfectly obedient to every single one of his commandments. So what is my best option? What's my best strategy? Well, the same one that Ruth employs. She remembers perhaps the, the only good piece of advice that Naomi gave her in getting ready for that night. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. Boaz may agree to honor the cultural obligation of the Leveret marriage, a custom that protected God's inheritance given to the Israelites in the Mosaic law, and perpetuate the dead man's name and inheritance in Israel. And what happens? He honors her appeal. Boaz, like God, redeems not on the basis of presentation, not on the basis of good works, but on the basis of an appeal to his promise and laws. Ruth appealed to Boaz's sense of obligation to the covenant promises of God to Redeemer. And when we appeal to God's covenant, we can expect God to respond like Boaz responds. Now listen to this language. I'm going to quote from Psalm 130, verse 7 and 8. Listen to the redemptive language. Listen to God's love of and adherence to his covenant in the words, his promises in this passage. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God is a redeeming God. And he doesn't require any special tricks or polish or even a certain kind of lifestyle from you. At Pentecost, when Peter preaches to the people in Jerusalem, and those people are listening and convicted, and they cry out, what must we do to be saved? What can we do about it? We just crucified the Lord of glory. How do I ever get rid of that guilt, that monkey on my back? What do I do? How can I please God after doing that? What does Peter say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That's beginning to sound a little bit more like us, right? We're like pretty far off from those people that were there present that day. But we're not, maybe that could be a couple of generations removed from those people. And then listen to this. But And everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Okay. That's us. You see, there is a promise that God has made to himself. To all of Israel, to the stranger, to the alien, to the Gentile, to the North American, the Asian, the African. All who are far off. To anyone entrapped in sin, with no hope, the promise is this, that if you turn away from self-reliance and put your hope in this promise and believe God, he will redeem. This is comfort. Folks, we are not on a mission to impress. We're on a mission to regress. What we want front and center 
is not our preparations, not our good works. What we want front and center are the promises that we have regarding Christ and Christ's merits. God answers to his own promises and moves to spread his garment of protection, his wings of protection and provision over us without hesitation when we appeal to those promises. And that brings us to our second point. Boaz reveals how God redeems us by fully covering our offenses. Point two really nuances the significance of Ruth's successful appeal. Boaz is not satisfied to make it clear to Ruth that he intends to redeem her. Boaz goes farther. Boaz covers Ruth's trip to the threshing floor fully, just as God covers our works and preparations. Now, Boaz is clearly concerned, and commentators go back and forth about exactly how daring Ruth's trip to the um, threshing floor was, but there is an indication that Boaz is a little uncomfortable with what has happened. It's somewhat compromising. He asks her to lie down and keep a low profile. Tells her that it shouldn't be known that a woman came out to the threshing floor. Sends her away in the half dark before anybody can recognize another person. And sends her home with a cape full of barley. It's all pretty hush-hush. And when she leaves that threshing floor, there's not a trace of the night's happenings visible or apparent anywhere. The only people that know about it are us that got invited into the narrative. No one else knows. And this is God's way of redeeming. He takes away our works and makes them disappear. Sends us back home with his works. Now, who harvested the grain in the story? Look back at verse 2 where Naomi is giving her instructions. And she says about Boaz, see, he is winnowing barley tonight. At the threshing floor. Who did the work? And harvested the barley? Boaz did. The Redeemer did, right? Who took it home? Ruth did. The one being redeemed. Let's say it this way. Let it not be known that Ron came out here seeking to gain approval based on his merits. The harvest of perfect deeds which Christ performed for us... Go home with us. God is our redeemer. And when we repent and trust Christ and take hold of the redemption he has purchased with his blood, we receive all of his works as if they were our own works. Listen to how Philippians puts it. Philippians 2, verse 8 and 9. I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish. So all our preparations, rubbish, garbage. In order that I may gain Christ, and listen to this, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you may... And you must rest completely in the works of your Redeemer. What you do yourself, 
does not help. So now, what does that mean? That sort of sounds like, well, I do whatever I want to, right? Just relax, kick back, and God takes care of it. Well, yes and no. It doesn't mean irresponsible complacence. You don't get to do whatever you want. But here's what it does mean. It does mean that we must discipline our minds and our emotions not to allow ourselves to be defined by our deeds, whether good or bad or sinful. What matters about our deeds, what matters about our life, is whether Christ redeemed our life, whether Christ redeemed those deeds. So, I'm going to need you to stick with me really carefully with this, okay? I'm going to give you some examples and provide some explanation. Envying in and of itself does not make you unpleasing to God. But it's enough to separate you from God because it's sin. Envy that's unredeemed and unforgiven separates you from God. Having lustful thoughts about that cute boy or girl in your class or about that woman or that man does not make you unpleasing to God, but being unredeemed and unforgiven by a holy God does. Being harsh with your kids at the end of a trying day does not make you unpleasing to God, but when that sinful action is unredeemed and unforgiven, that causes a gap, that causes a separation between you and God that cannot be bridged unless it is forgiven and redeemed. Here's the key conclusion. If you are separated, if you are alienated, a stranger, hopeless, the cause is you have not been redeemed. This does not excuse sin. God hates sin. Sin will separate you from God forever if it is not covered by Christ's payment in blood. But once you are redeemed, sin cannot change that standing. Our daily sins are not what ultimately separate us from God. Or none of us could ever please God, right? Each one, of, I sin every day. Every day I sin. And you sin. If that was the reason, we couldn't, nobody would go to heaven. But the key thing about sin to understand is that it must be paid for by someone, and you and I are broke and can never pay that price. Unpaid debt, unpaid sin is what separates us. And when God redeems that debt, it's paid. So even though God hates sin, he still takes pleasure in those who, though they sin, are counted sinless through redemption. Okay, so that's sin. What about good works and deeds? What do they do? Well, in terms of God's acceptance of you, they are not much difference. Giving generously does not make you pleasing to God. Being redeemed by Christ and having his works attributed to you does. Being a leader in the church does not make you pleasing to God. Being a pastor does not make you pleasing to God. Being redeemed by Christ does. Evangelizing does not make you pleasing to God. 
being redeemed does. Once you've been redeemed, doing these things will please God because the good works will be credited to Christ because without him, you could do none of those things. And God loves and honors and is well pleased with Christ and he will see Christ in you and he'll say, "Mm, that has my approval. So, yes, 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 honor Christ in your works, but no, 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 do not think that that is the basis of the pleasure that God always takes in his redeemed children. He's taking pleasure in the work of Christ in redeeming you. He takes pleasure in Christ's perfect obedience, which is covering up all your works, good or bad. And now, final point. Boaz reveals that God's redemption is fast. Boaz leaves the threshing floor and gets straight to work. We can all take Naomi's observation in verse 18 to heart. If you put yourself at the mercy of Christ the redeemer of sinners, just like verse 18 says, just wait to learn how the matter will turn out. Jesus will not rest. He will settle it today. And if he can redeem, he will redeem. And here's the good news. Unlike the dilemma that Ruth and Boaz face where there's a nearer redeemer, there is in the larger, broader historical uh, redemptive story, there is no nearer redeemer than Christ. And there's no limit to the number of poor, tortured souls that he can bring near by his blood and redeem by his blood and bring from far off to be near. So, if you've been listening and would like to have that part of you that you realize when you're quiet, when no one else is around, and you're reflecting on your life, you're being really, really honest with yourself, is sinful, rude, selfish, self-exalting, angry, or depressed, or gossipy, or envious, greedy, sexually impure, that part of you, you know it's there, then come to Christ and repent of your sins and call on him to be forgiven. And believe in Christ's payment for your sins in the currency of heaven. And there's only one currency that counts in heaven. For sins, And that's this. Christ's perfect life nailed to the cross and his blood shed for your sins. And you receive his perfect life. He takes your punishment. Takes your place of punishment on the cross. And you get his place of honor. At Christ's throne, at God's throne. If you put all your faith for your goodness in Jesus and present that work to God as your own, when you stand before Him at the final judgment, you can legitimately say, I was just getting barley. Christ's deeds are my deeds.
Ask Christ to save you right now. If you're thinking that in your heart, I'd say to you, right now is a good time. He will not rest, but he will settle the matter today. And he promises to redeem all those who come according to the things that he obligates himself to, which is to receive all who come in the perfections of Christ. And if you're a Christian, if you are being saved, it's one way the Bible explains the process of sanctification, calls it being saved, your sin, your works, do not define you anymore. When we sin, we repent, and we move on in freedom. I'd long for all of us to take it as an application just to move on in liberty when you sin. Christ has come to set you free. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. So move on in liberty. Do not get hung up on your sin. Take your sin seriously. Repent. Move on in freedom. Christ settles the matter today. Don't walk around moping and feeling condemned. Wait and see him forgive quickly. You will be treated just like Ruth, as if you were just out getting a little barley. So now, as we wind down, in conclusion, what do we do with this? What do we do with this new understanding or this refreshed understanding of Christ's redemption? We learn to think differently. Discouragement, depression, despondence, despair, resentment, bitterness, those are common afflictions of sinful men, even after we've been saved. We feel these things because we think about the wrong things. Remember the passage that we looked at from Philippians? It says it's refuse, it's garbage. If you think about garbage, you're going to feel like garbage, right? God has appointed for us a worthy redeemer, just as he had for Naomi and Ruth. Maybe you're thinking about what you see in your own life, what you can do yourself, what you want and aren't getting, what you have been behaving like, but that's not God. He's a redeemer who redeems poor foreigners like us freely. We have no heavenly currency. He pays it all. Christ redeems fully. There's no lingering judgment. He doesn't have a second class of citizens that you have to go to until you work your way up to be a first class citizen. What we end up being like is being in the position of Ephesians 2, that we have to remember that at one time we were aliens, strangers. We've been brought near. We've been brought into the covenant community. We've been brought into God's pleasure. Just as Naomi and Ruth will very soon be looking back at their hardships and remembering them no more. They will be a distant memory. And from that line will come the Messiah, the Christ, will be born out of their relationship. I don't want to steal the thunder of chapter 4 from Josh. But we know that this is a happy ending, don't we? But to think right, friends. We to think Think, think, because these questions are going to come. These challenges are going to come. And you should all feel like attorneys fully equipped to answer those accusations. Those questions come. 
You talk about your Redeemer. You talk about how it's all been dealt with. And you remember. And we will, we will win the case. Think about how the purchase from alienation and spiritual poverty took place. How little you did. Or if you have yet to trust Christ for your life, how little you would have to do. Repent. Trust Christ. That's it. Be diligent to do that one little thing. He's done all the rest. Think about who redeems, how he does it, and how pleasing that makes you and the only eyes that matter, the eyes of your Redeemer, Jesus.